Before we get started with this special episode of the On The Radar Podcast, there's a couple things I wanted to talk about. Quickly, number one, this episode could not be possible without the great people behind the Post Festival. We want to thank their sponsors, Heavy Blog is Heavy, High Wattage Booking, Young Epoch, Lux Invictus, A Thousand Arms, The Sinking Ship, Mills Custom, Luna Music, and Indiana City Beer. And a very special shout out to Derek from In-Store Recordings for helping us hook up with this interview. Without these sponsors, this festival could not happen. Also, just kind of a quick note, and there's nothing much I could do when editing this episode. There's a little bit of a technical problem. Around 20 minutes in, the speech gets a little, kind of, a little off for maybe about like 30 seconds to a minute. Just bear with it. The recording kind of just had a little hiccup and there was nothing I could really have done in post to uh, fix it. So enjoy this episode on the Radar Podcast. Welcome to another great episode of the On The Radar Podcast. This is the podcast that features artists and music coming to, through, and from the greater Midwestern areas. My name is Peapod. I am at my home studio, Hotbox Studios, as I like to call it, and have a very special interview. We are teaming up with the great people at the Post Festival. Now, this festival is happening October 19th and 20th. It is a collection of artists that fall under the category of Post, and they will converge in Indianapolis for a celebration of music. Once again, October 19th and 20th. Tickets are on sale right now. It's happening at Indiana City Brewing for the weekend. Tickets are available $40, but there's also uh, individual days. Uh, lots of great acts. Of course, uh, previously on the p- podcast, uh, Man Mountain was on. We also got the Appleseed cast, Heron, Pillars, Coastlands, Loom, Shipwreck, Carpathos, and many more, including this artist, over the phone, or the computer, over the internet, whatever you want to call it. My guest at this time, Nate Utesh, better known as Metavari. Nate, good evening. How are you? Good evening. I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for taking some time out oh, you and talking with us. And very excited for all of this. Very excited to be a part of the Post Festival. This sounds like a great time. It's the first time uh, these guys putting on the show uh, is doing something like this. And you are one of the many acts going to be performing at this. Yeah, you bet. It's crazy. The lineup is is just amazing. I'm super excited. You're right outside Fort Wayne, Indiana. So it's really just kind of like uh, you're going out for a few hours doing the show and then coming back home. Right, right. Yeah, uh, Indy's like a two-hour-ish drive for me. So um, especially in the last couple of years, it's felt like a home away from home. So 
I am so excited to be on this lineup on this bill. It's awesome. And we're going to be out there. We're going to take some photos, videos, doing some little uh, coverage of the whole entire event. Uh, it's about three and a half hours from Toledo, Ohio from here. So it's not too bad. Uh, my wife and I will be heading out there. Very excited to uh, check all this out. Uh, been getting really into post uh, music as of late because it seems like the world of like post and post rock, uh, not necessarily post Malone, but he could have shown right. up on this. Who knows? <laughs> I tell people about that. They're like, is this a Post Malone concert? I'm like, <laughs> no, but I wouldn't mind that. Oh, um, that's great. It's, uh, it seems like post music in general is kind of like this hybrid. And if you could take a bunch of like Venn diagrams and take the music from like rock and progressive and metal and, and, and synth wave, and you kind of put it all together and like right in the intersection of all of it is, is music of post. And you yourself, not only this year celebrating 10 years of the project of Metavari, uh, but you're going to be performing and uh, we're going to talk more about your music. But how did this all start for you? Good question. How did Metavari start? Yeah, so um, it, it's interesting. It it has evolved so much over the years and at its earliest conception, Metavari was just me and one of my best friends experimenting uh, with recording. We had been in bands through our whole adolescence together, together and were really wanted to make something experimental, make something electronic, inspired by, you know, uh, pianists like Harold Budd and the production of uh, Brian Eno and the work they did together on some of their ambient records and Aphex Twin and we bought some synthesizers and we're learning how to use like beat machines and how to do sequencing. And in a couple years time, somehow whatever it was that we were attempting to do had evolved into a five piece instrumental post-rock band <laughs> that was so very far from where we had started. But all of a sudden, you know, we're using guitars and I played a Fender Rhodes live and we still incorporated a lot of cinematic elements that, um, you know, post-rock is known for, but also a lot of like synth-based music um, was kind of at the backbone of what we were doing, but it was very um, rock-heavy um, in, in the way kind of the linear timeline of the songs went and the way we composed music. Um, we just kind of found ourselves in a post-rock band all of a sudden and did that for many years, uh, toured like crazy and um, as we grew older, careers changed, families grew. Um, as we had, you know, at the time that we had to work on Metavari ebb and flowed, um, I've kind of always been the heart of the band and what was happening. And it had eventually become a solo project for me with the live members appearing as they had time or were available, whether that was like recording uh, something for me or physically being on stage with me and it just kind of evolved back into where it had started and that was really um, electronic minded with synthesizers and sequencing and uh, all of a sudden Metavari is not a post-rock band anymore it's this electronic beast um, with this massive uh, tenure in the middle of its life where we were playing as a full band with drums and guitars so it's complicated and boring but uh that's sort of like the strange roadmap that has 
brought me where I am now, kind of doing this alone, but with this rich history with some of my closest friends. Um, so it's wild. It's wild to be here a decade later um, and still be doing it, but it looks a lot different than what it used to. I think the ins and flows of everything of this project is most fascinating to me because it seems like not only when you started as a post-rock band, it still fit in this genre, but at the same time, when you moved on to more of a synth wave and more synthesizers and uh, maybe some could uh, even uh, call it like, you know, in the grand scheme or the, the untrained ear techno music in a sense. Right. Um, it's still, it's still fit. It's still, uh, made sense in in it all, and it and it flowed, especially with your first full length, "Be One of Us" and "Hear No Noise," and then moving on uh, to later uh, your "Symmetry" album that you just dropped uh, late last year. It seems like it all still went together. It still fit together. It was still the whole process you started with. That I mean, that's kind to hear you say. That's my hope. You know, um, is that there's still kind of a thread that's piecing together the things that I love about being a composer. And a lot of that has to do with instrumental music and being inspired by emotion and these cinematic kind of ethereal qualities. And whether that's being written uh, with a drummer and a guitar or an analog synthesizer, it's still coming from the same place, I'd like to think. So I'm, I hope that um, while it may sound a lot different, at first glance that you can still kind of tell that what's happening is Metavari, I hope. <laughs> I, I think so. I've been jamming to the stuff. I always do like a deep dive in, in people's discography before I do an interview. And uh, ever since I, we, we've started talking, setting this interview up, uh, I, I've been listening to the whole catalog. Thank you, Spotify. You could take my $10 a month right. <laughs> for that. Uh, but it, it, it seems like there, there, there is a common feel to it. And I like how you use the word composer. And I was trying to use that word way back a couple episodes back with our Man Mountain episode, who are going to be performing at the Post Festival. Great group of guys out of uh, Upper Michigan. If you have not listened to that episode, go check it out. But cheap plugs at the end of the episode. Um, it, I, I made the joke of like people would be sitting down like with, you know, like a feather pen and like writing in the notes and then like hitting the instruments or strumming the instruments. Right, and that's how yeah. like a song with no singer, with no, you know, w would be made in a post rock band. And then I deep and I deep dove more into acts like some of the acts playing uh, like, or even, you know, acts like ranges uh, and, and things like that, that uh, a lot of these bands, while not having a singer does not necessarily hurt them. You could tell that post rock and post music and the music that you play, even though it's more synth heavy now, it, it tells a story. And that was the biggest thing about instruments. And that was the biggest thing that appealed to me with some of this stuff. Jazz, in my opinion, is very sporadic. It's very all over the place with post music. It seems like there is a constant, uh, idea flowing through each song or each album, almost going to borderline ambient. And when I say ambient, some people might think it's like music you would like fall asleep to, but there's like that fine line between all of that. Yeah, I hear that for sure. And that's a good point with jazz too, because, um, you know, people might hear instrumental and that's a really good kind of vantage point to 
to how you can kind of relate to instrumental music. Jazz obviously is this massive influence on that, but where post-rock differs, even from a lot of like instrumental metal, is there are, I mean, I would say typically not a lot of like solos and kind of trading of um, voices in a hero kind of way. Like post-rock is more about the experience and the, the wall of sound and that like you said, ambient cinematic quality that's taking you somewhere. You're, there are themes weaving in and out of records a lot of times or songs, and it's you're experiencing something and you're you're listening to a story being told that you're kind of hopefully visualizing in your head. And I, I know you could say that about a lot of music, but it, those are the same things that post-rock harkens on that are different from maybe a jazz where it's more about performance and the that kind of hero aspect and that doesn't exist in that kind of music and and a lot of the stuff that I'm influenced by as um, a pianist and a keyed composer listening to soundtracks tangerine dream um, horror movies from my childhood like John Carpenter like the the love of John Carpenter and that synthesizer soundtrack is kind of in full swing again and it's incredible timing for someone like me who's um kind of on the heels of of those artists and those composers so yeah it's 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 tapping into something different when you listen that um and I I don't think that a, a solo has a place there usually in my opinion when researching metavari and 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 finding out more about you um you you took place in a phenomenal interview um and i, I forget the website or off the top of my head uh and 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 i it, it helped with this interview kind of get inside your mindset kind of almost a spoiler before i even talked to you <laughs> which was very nice but it also helped me out because we can uh we can uh, talk off of some of the points. One of them was really interesting that you both your parents were musicians, but then ended up becoming uh, different healthcare uh, right, uh, right. physicians or in in that world. Uh, your dad's a psychologist, and your mom is an occupational therapist. Right. Um. It, it, so it seems like music always ran in your family, but then it was almost like a second thought while you were already in this world and you just felt more comfortable shooting off into your own. Yeah, that's absolutely. And I've thought about that a lot, especially in my adolescence of kind of like where the role that music has for me in my life. And, um, it, it's, I hope I don't take it for granted, but I love the fact that music was such a, a living organism in our house. You know, my, my dad was affected by, guitar you know in a really deep way and sometimes that was unrelatable to me in my adolescence especially when he was forcing classic rock upon you know this little punk rock kid that thought that was miserable you know now I can have a better appreciation for those (laughs) years and those moments but it's like yeah I don't want to take for granted the fact that that was our house that you know my mom loved new wave when I was a child I remember I mean we can even put in old tapes of um home videos and tears for fears songs from the big chair is in the background and it's like man i i i never want to forget how cool that is um or that there was always a piano in our house and even though um i had really rudimentary 
piano lessons from my mom growing up. I have never really learned theory and had a great understanding of finger positions and chord structures and things like that. It was always just playing by ear and playing by emotion. And there was this, this open air in our house to get on that piano and do whatever the hell, you know? And um, that really set the pace for the kind of producer, the kind of composer I would be and am now. Um, and I, I consider that such a crazy blessing to have had that household. First things first, Tears for Fears is super underrated in my book. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, they are. I, those first two records, anyway, I would say are one of my favorite two records in the world, for sure. Especially in that in the, the realm of New Wave. And second of all, you're a father yourself now. I am, right? Yeah. So I am I am attempting to spoil my kid rotten with all of my taste as a dad should do. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's what what you're supposed to do is uh, shove all the things you like down your kid's throat and hopefully some of it connects. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or uh, yeah, I'm about to create a child that hates synthesizers and horror movies. So we'll he, we'll he see what happens. Into, he will go into punk rock then. Right. So it'll just be a flip-flop. Yeah, exactly.
in the punk rock scene were you uh, partially influenced by? Oh, you know, I um, as a young teen, I really loved um, Epitaph Records, Fat Records. I thought that oh, yeah. No Effects and the things that Fat Mike were doing were just legendary. I one of my favorite bands on Fat Records was Strung Out. Um, I remember I was a singer of the band I was in, and I remember just trying so hard in my car after school on the way home to sound like him and just like trying to figure out why my voice didn't sound like him. And of course, just not being a good singer didn't occur to me. But um, it, I think also, yeah, in my adolescence, it was kind of where you realize that especially maybe in the 90s that labels were these um collections these curated collections of ideas and sounds and i would find a band that i loved like strung out see that it's fat records and then just devour fat records for the next six months or the same with epitaph um revelation records at the and then like kind of watching the whole uh metal emo thing happen in the early 2000s and the, the way that kind of evolved like it's it just a, it a wild soured upon on on the on when you said emo <laughs> uh I, I feel like that word has just become such a goofy word but i mean i was all in at 2001 i was all in with emo so i can't i can't deny that but <laughs> <laughs> It seems like now labels are, uh, while a helpful thing to kind of get a band to the next level, do you think a label could also tarnish the creative spirit of an artist? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I, I know we live in such a digital age now, and there's a lot of discussion about even labels not being necessary. Um, I happen to work for a record label and it's an independent label and I see uh the freedom that our artists have and the way they're treated and it 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 seems incredible to me it seems like an amazing um uh partnership and kind of vantage point to have from both sides of the equation so um maybe in a lot of ways that digital age and the way that major labels have uh, become so all-encompassing and kind of monopolized a band's vision had birthed these independent labels, um, especially kind of if I think about the electronic world where my mind and my heart really is right now, I can really find parallels to my adolescence in the way that um, small electronic labels have kind of appeared and very obviously become curated chunks of types of electronic music i i feel like a, a dunce sometimes at the, how many electronic labels there are and what they all mean exactly but i hear it in these curated pockets that these labels represent and it's incredible and it really reminds me of my childhood in a lot of ways the way those labels have become and so for for those reasons i i still think a label is really important and can be, be really special um, for a band that, that's found that family and that influence in that way. What is the label company that you work for? If you can, if you can dive into that for sure. So I work for a label group that uh, runs three record labels: Secretly Canadian, Dead Oceans, and Jag Jaguar. 
So I am one half of the art department, which is two people, um, and an <laughs> and an intern. Um, and I'm res- so you're one third. Yeah, one third, and I'm responsible for uh, basically half of all the packaging that comes through the label, whether that be um, a digital cover, uh, album cover, or the full Monty printed piece that you would buy on record shelves uh sometimes the band has you know art already a lot of times they'll bring a designer with them and i just kind of help them walk through the process other times i am the art director on the project that's seeing their vision through um it's a pretty wild um career that i've found myself in on that side of my life you're an artist in every sense of the word then you're not only musician but you're a very accomplished graphic designer uh that's probably more gracious than what the reality is of my artistic sensibilities but um i'd i'd like to think that i I have a, a lot of facets in that world for sure um it's it's i feel very lucky i feel very lucky to have um, kind of feet in the places that I do and the opportunities that I've had as a musician and a visual artist, it feels insanely lucky. Like it's, it's either about to run out very abruptly one day or you know, somebody's going to find out uh, the the wool I'm pulling over all of this and it's going to fall on its face. But at the moment, I couldn't be more excited and grateful for the the things I'm able to be doing. I mean, you should be very proud of yourself. I mean, you recently uh, announced that you're going to be a part of the Smashing Pumpkins new album, Shining and Oh So Bright, Volume 1 LP, No Past, No Future, No Sun, that's coming out in November. Which, by the way, can you tell Mr. William Corgan that it's the most extra-sounding name for an album I've heard in some time? (laughs) It's, It's a long one. It is a long one. It is, it is uh, but I can understand. But that 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 sounds and, and the looks of it looks uh, very crazy. You also did some uh, tour posters for their most recent run of shows uh, yeah. for that as yep. well. Um, anybody else? Um, like, so if if this is the point where you could brag a little bit about your work, who else have you worked <laughs> with? And some of the artists that you've worked with, uh, uh, arts wise. Um. Yeah. So. Ed- a lot of artists on secretly Canadian dead oceans, Jack Jaguar, um, Joey Dosick, Lonnie Holly, um, Alex Cameron, Marlon Williams, Japanese breakfast. I'm working with Sharon Van Etten right now. Um, which is amazing. It's amazing as a musician to be able to work with people that are in a, a lot cooler spot than I am. And, and, and like, you work with your heroes a lot of times, which is really wild um, for the tables to be turned in that way. Um, I, I work for a small label out of Belgium called One Way Static that does a lot of horror soundtracks and electronic Ooh. soundtracks. So I've done um, some like random, uh, like kind of lost scores for horror movies from the 70s and 80s that are either released on vinyl for the first time or for the first time in a long time. I did the packaging for um, the Ganja and Hess soundtrack, uh, the Night of the Living Dead soundtrack uh, from 1990. Um, Got to do many volumes of uh, Claus Scholl's uh, collection called La Vie Electronique, um, which is crazy because he's 
has his foot in so many things, including like the early days of Tangerine Dream, who are one of my biggest heroes of all time. Uh, oh, and Florian Frick, who's also kind of from that area. He did like a, um, a Mozart inspired record called Plays Mozart. And I got to do the packaging for that. Like just really crazy things that I, I feel like I have no business touching um, have kind of come across my plate. And now I have this wild, wild portfolio of really um, proud crazy things um that sounds so rad and uh i recently actually um i so we have a local area uh comic book a horror comic book writer from around here his name is dirk manning and uh he recently put out a bunch of um uh he, he did a series called nightmare world that took place uh during the three days of the apocalypse uh and what happened from different points of view and there were 13 each volume had 13 short stories all uh, written by Dirk Manning, but all uh, illustrated by different people. But it would jump around. So he recently came out with the entire run of his series, all four volumes. Um, uh, and he brought it out on a, like a hardcover and he kickstarted it. And one of the bonuses were audio pro stories with uh, backing. And a gentleman under the name of Steve Green um, did the, the soundtrack for them. And I read one of the stories and that was a cool experience. Cause I I'm used to like reading a script when I'm not doing this, I, I, I work in radio. So when I I'm used to reading a script and not knowing what the final product is. Um, but when I heard right. the final product, it, 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 the music and like, and it was very synthesized and very that, but still had that horror feel feel to it. Um, it, it made the whole piece, which is awesome. You did, uh, I, and I thought this was a super cool idea. So in Fort Wayne, uh, at the Cinema Center, they did a concert series of like rescoring silent films, and the people right. would perform them in front of the audience. You did Metropolis from 1927. Tell me a little bit about that and that whole process. Yeah, that was that was a crazy, crazy couple years. Um, so we um, they approached Metavari about being involved in this thing, and I think. You know, expectation is that you spend a couple months, maybe incorporate material that you have, some new stuff, and you just play in front of um, a seated theater while the silent movie's playing, which is awesome. It's an incredible. Um, the people that run Cinema Center are um, just kind of coming up with really crazy ways to get the public involved in that theater space, and that was huge. But instantly, as I'm working on this, I realized, you know, um, this could double as my next record if I, like, really take it seriously and really pour myself over this material. Um, I'm about to write two hours of music, and why not release that when we're done with this whole thing rather than just kind of performing it on a fun night and calling it a day? And... um it turned into like an 18 month process of uh, I, I mapped out every kind of like theme and scene and dramatic kind of change in the film in a spreadsheet down to the minute and then started organizing them to see if I could find kind of uh, reoccurring moments or tones that I could um, start building up those 
base layers for this music and uh, kind of simultaneously thinking about what the next Metavari record would be, like kind of as I would hit on something that felt really substantial, working that into the score everywhere it made sense and then pulling out a four and a half minute version of it that would be a standalone track for the next Metavari record. And then the, just the next 18 months work like that of kind of going back and forth between those two ideas and um, finished it. I played it at Cinema Center and then started shopping around the music uh, to see if maybe any labels would be interested in either that pared down next record idea or the Metropolis as a whole. And the record, I, the label I'd mentioned earlier, One Way Static, before I had met them, our initial contact was through me shopping Metropolis to them and they loved it and ended up giving me a record deal where we released uh, the entire Metropolis score, two LPs worldwide as an official record store day title. And it went out through Light in the Attic Records in Seattle and Mondo and Austin and all these crazy avenues worldwide that I had never had the opportunity to have a record released through. Um, and it was just one day only as Record Store Day sold out. That was that. And then we turned around and took the pared down version that had kind of alternate takes and shorter versions of some songs, uh, different versions of other songs. And that became Metavari's official next record, Symmetry, which was released again by One Way Static at the end of last year. So um, sort of just this long-winded process, but that's how how those two pieces came to be. It's fascinating, and Symmetry is dynamite, if you have not listened to it yet. Um, one of the things, while the ups and downs, and I, I won't touch too much about it, but there was some dark times personally um, that right, that happened right. to you and your family. Like I said, I'm not going to dive into that too much. Um, uh, but I, I found it fascinating because I've had many conversations past episodes about why trying times actually created great art, but you said that the dark and the tormented uh, artists and the idea of that does not make good art. Negativity is the enemy of creativity. Yeah, I, I, I feel strongly about that. I mean, it's a funny thing because you're told um, as an artist or otherwise that, you know, suffering is what helps you find those like tormented dark corners that you need to produce art and you read about you know artists that went through these crazy dark periods and turned out the greatest movies and art of their lives or whatever I'm sure that's true but for me um so I, I can tell you I, I, it's fine to share but uh in the middle of the process of working on Metropolis my wife and I found out we were pregnant and several months later um, ended up miscarrying that pregnancy and it was this really like unexpected uh, devastating turn in our life obviously um, and I know that miscarriages are common it's not some weird um, crazy thing that 
happened to us that nobody else has experienced. But in the moment, it was um, really tragic and it was really hard, um, especially for my wife and kind of like bearing that with her as we worked through it. And meanwhile, I am a musician and I'm working on this score and it really affected the way that I was watching a film that was essentially about a father and a son and affected the way I was writing. And at first, very negatively, I found it hard to concentrate. I, uh, the There are lots of dark moments in the film. I like writing dark music. I like evil stuff. <laughs> and it was just hard to be in there while feeling dark. And I felt like as we found kind of... Um, peace in that season as we found joy together and hope and we're coming out of it and thinking about the rest of our lives and um the day that should we be so lucky as to have a successful pregnancy or we're gonna have a family and that hope like turned a different switch in my brain uh of joy and of hopefulness and then all of a sudden the dark parts of that film and of that writing felt richer and it was like it felt more enjoyable to to write the dark creepy stuff um as a happy person than as a sad person which may not work for everyone but that's what really happened to me during that time um and 18 months was a long stretch and at the end of it um we were very blessed and fortunate to have a successful pregnancy and my wife gave birth to a son and I, the story I tell a lot of times when I talk about Metropolis was like literally by the end of that record, I was holding this tiny baby in my arms as I was mixing and in the final days of mastering. And it was just this weird flip, this 180 thing of like just a year ago, uh, sitting down here and thinking through this music just felt crippling. And now here I am with this little dude and it's the most incredible moment of my life. And um, I know it's really personal. It's probably mostly just personal for me. Like I, the average person may not hear cemetery, especially and, and feel like it takes them to all those places. But um, because it was so personal and because it was so um, monumental for me, I felt like symmetry is packed with so much more than just simply what, sounded good uh which is a fine way to write and it's often how we write if it sounds good you've you're writing something successful <laughs> but having a lot of other um emotional kind of points milestones behind the writing of those records metropolis and cemetery um has really made it something that doesn't exist in other music that i've written for sure
For Minavari, you're celebrating 10 years, you're reworking uh, your first EP, uh, Ambling, um, as part of 10 years, and then you have the post-festival coming up, as, as we said, October 19th and 20th in Indianapolis. What else is happening with Minavari? Well, I will go back and amend that note. Um, okay. Uh, that I had every intention of rewriting <laughs> ambling this year for the 10 year anniversary of Medivari. Um, and in a bittersweet way, have had a lot of incredible opportunities this year. And I've had to, I, I, I first tabled it and then nixed it all together. But what is happening now is uh, next year will be the 10 year anniversary of our first full length record as when Medivari was a full band, it's called Be One of Us and Hear No Noise. Right. Um, for a long time was a record that had the most um, kind of, uh, not that Medivari has ever been like a household name in any stretch of the imagination, but if somebody had heard Medivari, it, it was because of Be One of Us and Hear No Noise. And what I'm doing is reworking a collection of songs from that record in the style that I make music now as a solo artist. And that is what I'm going to release in 2019. So a slightly different version of where I was originally, but such is life. Things get crazy. Um, Honestly, I, I, I dig the idea. Uh, I, I, I like to be one of us and hear no noise. I, uh, and, and it's a good, it's good for what it was. Um, I yeah. liked, uh, I liked symmetry better. Um, but I also really enjoyed moonless which uh, came out in 2015. I thought that was a yeah. very... Well, thanks. All the, all the albums, like all... Listening to the whole discography, and of course also recently you did that split um, oh, right. and, uh, with Makeup and Vanity set, uh, which I, I, I don't see enough splits nowadays. I know, I know. Um, I, and I love the idea of it. That or like like collaborations, like a band, uh, like one band featuring another band. Like, there's not enough features. There's not enough like... Uh, uh, I know we we talked about earlier in the interview about like how jazz is like everybody is like you know uh, playing with everybody almost at the same time, but like I, I love the idea of like when a band or an artist like hopped on and worked together on something because it was right. something special in that right. moment. So yeah. seeing or hearing that split uh, was really rad. So I'm very interested in seeing how "Be One of Us" and "Hear No Noise" goes more synth style than post rock style. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am too. It, it could be a disaster, but I'm excited. I've got a lot of post its um, with haphazard notes on how to kind of interpret this into something. I, I a lot of music that I've worked on this year has been kind of um, 
exploring. It's not that it's that much more experimental, but trying to be a lot more nonlinear in the way that I write and not thinking about uh, structure and verse chorus, but kind of intentionally um, letting things deteriorate, um, pulling things apart, and then like assembling it in kind of a collage um, in the audio. Um, it was hard to describe. And again, it sounds a lot more experimental than what I'm actually doing, but I'm, I've been trying to just kind of blow up the way I write music electronically and in a way that can be a lot more chaotic live, which has been really exciting. And um, a lot of times a, a really neat way for me as an electronic musician that I get to explore things is through uh, remixes or commissions because it's kind of this oddball one-off scenario where someone is just paying you to do whatever uh, to their music. And I've been able to kind of like uh, open some doors and walk through some strange places and see what's working and reworking Be One of Us is, similarly is kind of this like experiment and what can I pull off? And I think it's all really influencing um, Metavari's next record, which will be a ways from now, but like ultimately pointing towards that, you know, uh, of just kind of where I want to be next. Um, but it's been exciting. I've, I've had commissions for, oh man, I think five remixes this year. Um, I produced a track for, um, a singer and, and funny enough had a, a guest spot, like you're talking about, there's a, a band called Darker Shapes who are a post-rock band and they wanted kind of this uh, saxophone experimentation happening at the end of one of their songs and I'm right in the middle of working on that right now. Um, and again, it's a, another way to kind of rethink the way I write saxophone on records because I play sax on a lot of tracks, but it's very straightforward. It's just, it, whether it's a solo or kind of this... Um, repetitive lick that's incorporated into the the meat of the song i'm trying to find different ways to take that audio from the saxophone live and destroy it a little bit and get a little weirder with it and this feature on the darker shapes track is kind of a, a playground for that in some way where i'm figuring how, out how this is going to work. I love it. I can't wait. And uh, for your live shows, do you play sax during your live shows? I do, yep. That's cool. I always, I, I've i seen a lot of bands uh, uh, try to incorporate more uh, classical sounding instruments in modern music, which I'm always a sucker for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, I, I think it, it, may, it adds a very, it adds a very interesting uh, dynamics uh, to all music. Uh, uh, as a, as a synth artist, how do you portray a lot of this stuff uh, during a live set? Yeah, it's um, it's it's another world for sure, and it has it is it has taken up a lot of time and been a lot of um, it's just this really nuanced thing where you know you're in a band with five people, you write a song, and then you just do that song live more or less like that's what my life looked like my whole life and now all of a sudden I'm one dude um not thinking about the live show just producing and composing 
and then for the live show, you know, I have this a couple paths to go down. Do I really change it quite a bit um, and just sort out what I can pull off live, which is not that many things at once? Um, I also bring a, an acoustic drum kit on the stage, so I, I walk over to the set uh, from time to time and play stretches on the drums and then obviously I need pre-recorded material during those moments so it's just this weird beast where I'm like trying to find the line between like essentially karaoke and like a DJ set versus something very performed um and ultimately where I've landed is I have um two analog synthesizers with me a series of MIDI controllers that are triggering looping and sequencing arrangements and then i i sing and play sax and the drums so between all of that i'm um launching a lot of sections and bass layers where there would be like beat and bass and then i'm performing on top of it and i've given myself uh sections to come in and out of um whether a part is fun to play or kind of the loudest moment in the song and I want that to come out of my body and not be you know triggered or pre-recorded um so I, I just kind of like walk to these stations through the set coming in and out of the song performing and triggering uh moments uh, something that's kind of cool and keeps it organic with the synthesizers is I can send uh one synthesizer uh like a midi sequence of notes that i'm not performing while playing something else and yet still manipulate though that sound on that synthesizer while i'm playing a different synthesizer if that makes any sense so um kind of still having control in some way or um shaping it as organically as i can knowing that still at the end of the day it's one guy on the stage pushing buttons um and hoping he's not boring everyone. <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm very excited to see what you bring to the post festival. Once again, October 19th and 20th at Indiana city brewing tickets are on sale right now. $40 for the entire weekend. Single day passes are available. He Nate Metavari is performing on day two. That's a Saturday. And right after that, uh, our friends in Man Mountain will be playing. It's right in the middle of the day, so it should be a lot of fun. And I'm very excited uh, for all of that. Nate, thank you so much uh, for taking some time out and talking to us. I hope for the best for you. I can't wait for a lot of your stuff. If we want to get in touch with Metavari, how do we do so? Good question. The best way is just metavari.com. M-E-T-A-V-A-R-I.com, and that'll get you anywhere you want to go. <laughs> awesome. And then if we want to see some of your art and your uh, digital uh, uh, graphic design work, where do we go? So my website for that is uh, a dumb one. It's Nathaniel, without any vowels, N-T-H-N-L.com. Awesome. Well, I really do appreciate it. Of course, Post Festival, go check it out. Uh, there will be details on this episode, October 19th and 20th. We want to thank all the guys uh, for letting me get this opportunity to cover not only Metavari, but also a lot of the stuff happening there. So uh, you can follow this podcast on all of the major podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, etc. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. It's On The Radar PC. Follow us on Instagram, On The Radar Podcast. And of 
course, at the end of this episode, as always, we've got a deal for you for our friends over at Stupid Rad Merch Company out of Illinois. Uh, Nate, anything else you want to add? Man, I don't think so. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of this and talk about all this stuff. I, I'm so excited for Postfest. Um, yeah, I, I get to play right in the middle of the day, which means that the, the nerves will flow out of me and I can enjoy the back half of the day. It's going to be a lot of fun. I cannot wait to see you in person and talk to you and hang out and see all these For great sure. acts. Go check it out. IMP Pod, you are you. Don't fight it, feel it. And this has been another great episode of the On the Radar Podcast. do a quick shout out to our friends over at stupid rad stupid rad merch.com now stupid rad merch company is your one stop shop for all of your punk rock shirts and accessories not only are they the official web store for merch for the bands the bomb pops the gusto boss's daughter smoking popes but they also have a great line of their own style of shirts enamel pins accessories and so much more i love all their stuff and i love working and supporting with Stupid Rad Merch Company. Go check out some of their clothing now at stupidradmerch.com and if you buy any of their line of accessories, clothes, enamel pins, what have you, use the password RADAR at checkout R-A-D-A-R and you get 20% off your purchase and that 20% off will come to us here at On The Radar Podcast and help support us in all of our doings. Get rad with Stupid Rad Merch Company and be rad with the On The Radar podcast.